Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So a lot there. Um, Welcome to my podcast. There you go. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Let me try to uh, get to as, as much of that as I can. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Who am I? I am Ezra Klein. You probably guessed it. Uh, my guest this week is Representative Joe Kennedy, who you might remember from such State of the Union responses as the 2018 State of the Union response. This is a speech that is usually a graveyard. It is where aspiring, uh, well-liked, ambitious politicians go to disappoint everyone and then get made fun of. But Kennedy's speech was pretty well-received. Uh, it was uh, an outpouring of interest in... Yes, a Kennedy. But but the reason I think he's interesting right now is that at a moment when the Democratic Party has been riven by an argument about whether they should emphasize economic populism or identity, he showed or reshowed the power of what I would call an Obama-esque message to the Democratic Party, a message about inclusion, about what America stands for. There was a lot less Trump bashing in him to him than I would have thought for that State of the Union. But there was quite a resonance with the messages that have worked for Democrats in the past and that I'd begun to wonder if they would work for this Democratic Party in the future. But but listening to him, I think they might. So this is a conversation where I wanted to, to push on all that a little bit. What does it resolve down into? What does that message of an inclusive America, what does it mean for policy when he says that we don't have to make choices between this group or that group, between that approach and this approach? What happens when you do have to make a choice? What happens when there is something zero-sum? What happens when people perceive a zero-sumness? So this is what I tried to do in the interview to, to push him a little bit on this. Um, I found his answers interesting. We also have a fascinating discussion towards the end about drug policy. He has taken a harder line on this than many in the Democratic Party, and I was fascinated to hear why. Before we get to Congressman Kennedy, as always, a couple quick asks. One, are you listening to Today Explained, the greatest podcast on the internet? Yes, including this one. This is a a pale, pale shadow of Today Explained. Uh, I am, I am really, really, really excited about what they're doing there. Um, I've been working with them a bunch. And if you're not subscribed to Today Explained, go subscribe to Today Explained. Go right now 
I will wait. You can just press stop. You can even do it while you continue listening, but go subscribe to Today Explained. It is a hell of a project. Really, really proud of it. If you've not checked it out, I think you should. Um, as always, you can give me your feedback, your guest ideas, anything else at Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Again, Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. And with that said, here is Congressman Joe Kennedy III. Congressman Kennedy, thank you for being here. My honor. Thank you. So I wanted to start with the State of the Union response in a particular way. <laughs> okay. Uh, Chapstick? That, no, I did not want to stop there. Thank uh, you. <laughs> that, you're welcome. That speech is known as a graveyard for politicians. I mean, almost, I cover it every year, and almost every year, with the exception of, of Jim Webb in 2006, we write about how ah, it just looked kind of weird. <laughs> the, the room was weird. The energy was weird. It, it didn't look good. You know, another politician sacrificed to the State of the Union response. So when you get that call, is that... What is getting that call like? Um, so it uh, it wasn't a call, um, which is probably the, they send you an engraved letter, right? <laughs> Close um, four doves. So exactly, uh, and I think I have my days right here. It was either Sunday or Monday. Um, we were in a caucus meeting during the midst of the government shutdown, and Leader Pelosi said, um, walked by and said, "Hey, I, I want to talk to you." And I said, "Okay, um, what's up?" And she said, "Not here or later." I said, okay, fine. And we're on the floor then either that night or the next day. And she said, I, I, I need to talk to you. And I said, of course, what do you need? And she said, not here. And we walked off the floor. And I stopped in the Democratic cloakroom, the little hold area um, right off the House floor. And she said, not here. And she um, walked out the back door towards her office through the Rayburn room in the Capitol. And I looked at one of her staff members and I said, am I in trouble? And they kind of shrugged. And it can be a long walk back into uh, her office. And we got back into her office in one of the, the, the chambers there. And she kicked everybody out. And so it was just me and her. And um, that doesn't happen all that often. And her staff had already had a glass of water sitting there waiting for me. So I, I knew something was coming, but I didn't know what. Um, and she asked if I would um, – we sat down and briefly and uh, kind of got right to it because we were in between votes – and obviously, I, I knew it was an extraordinary honor and so wanted to uh, and did say yes. I also have watched my fair share of responses as well and know that it's a tough spot to be in for anybody, right? Um, and whether you have an, a, a – trying to follow up the president of the United States speaking to the entire government, um, House, Senate, uh, Supreme Court, Diplomatic Corps – in a room, particularly with unified Republican control, that's going to give him a, a big ovation. Um, it's n not an easy thing to do. So did I understand the timeline right here? Because in the Trump era, I found my sense of time has become warped and strange. But you said this was right after or during the government shutdown, the three-day shutdown. Yeah. That was, as I remember, a week before yeah. the State of the Union. They inform the State of the Union response giver a couple of days before the State of the Union? We had we had a week. We had, you know, I, I think I got the official thing on... Democrats again, know Sunday this happens every year, right? Um, Sunday night or Monday, and so we had a week. Um, so uh, it was... Um, we got to work pretty quick, and uh, I've got a great team, uh, and the leader's team was really helpful in trying to... The, the, the best news we got right away was that we didn't have to give this in Washington. Look, there there are some folks that might be able to speak directly to camera for seven or eight minutes. Robert Redford, Al Pacino. Um, I'm not either of those, right? I'm I, I'm not going to give a, a direct to camera speech for eight minutes. I won't pay attention to me. Um, 
so uh, when she indicated that we didn't have to do this in an office in Washington, that opened up a broad array of possibilities. And um, it was kind of through that that we ended up at this vocational school in Fall River and Diamond uh, Vocational School, which is a great place that I visited a couple of times um, and wanted to, one, be deliberate about where I wanted to give the speech and, and use that as part of the platform. And two, recognize that you're not going to meet the pomp and circumstance of the house chamber. No one is. So don't try. Go and, and just do something totally different that is very much your own message. So now I want to talk to you about another speech you gave yeah. that I read in preparation for this interview. So you gave a speech in, in Texas, and now I'm forgetting the venue, although you may remember. the. Yep. Is it a Jefferson Jackson dinner? It, it was no. their version. It was a uh, Texas Democrats um, annual fundraiser and uh, about a year ago, well, and, eight, six months ago. And there are a couple lines in here that stood out to me. And, and you said at one point, there's been no lack of postmortems about what went wrong for our party in 2016. We've soul searched, we've studied, we've debated. But the lesson we need is a lesson we already know. Do not underestimate what it means to be able to provide for your family and how deeply it destroys you when you can't. Did the Democratic Party underestimate that in the Obama years? I, I don't think that we underestimated it in the Obama years. I think that when you go through an election, I think, look, this is what Obama really ran on, was uh, hope and change and trying to lift people up. Uh, and he did. Um, and... Um, did everything that the administration could to try to change not just uh, politics, but um, try to unite the country. And look, there's been a lot written and said about Mitch McConnell's promise in the first couple of months of his administration to try to make sure that he was a one-term president and to be dead set against whatever it was that Obama was trying to put forth. I do think that what ended up as a consequence of Coming out of a recession, which we have had a historic economic growth ever since, but it has been slow and it has been uneven. Um, the challenge then of saying, you know, for, for many constituencies that Democrats represent, if you look at greater Boston, if you look at New York, if you look at San Francisco, if you look at Los Angeles, many of those urban centers are doing really well. Even in the middle of the country, those urban centers, those metropolises are doing really well. That ends up being, because of gerrymandering and other issues there, Democratic strongholds. But there is then a disconnect between some of those economic power centers and parts of the rest of the country. And I don't think uh, our realities and the issue sometimes that power communities like the ones that I represent, even communities like Fall River, uh, some of those policies, we have to make sure that when we, we are championing them, we also understand what those messages sound like for folks that represent other parts of the country, particularly rural parts of the country. And I'm not so sure we were paying as close attention there as we should have. So so help me be specific on this. Yeah. What are the way, one thing that Donald Trump seemed to me to understand is that speaking about policy is a way of speaking about yourself. The wall is a policy, but the wall was a way of presenting something about Donald Trump, about how he felt about immigrants, about what he thought were the problems facing the country. It represented him. Hillary Clinton had many more policies. She had many more policies targeted at those exact areas. But there were so many of them. And the way they were designed, none of them spoke about her. None of them came to represent anything about her. What are the policies that Democrats needed to unite behind? What did it, what what should they have done there that they didn't specifically? That's right. I think, um, so I'm going to agree largely with what you said. I Look, Democrats love um, the folks that I represent, my own proclivities in politics. This is a policy job. You want to know what the policy solutions are. You're looking for solutions. How do you address these problems? However, 
understand, I think we all have to understand that that 2016 election, Hillary Clinton had more white papers and policy responses out there than any other candidate in history, as far as I can, can tell and as far as I'm concerned. Jeb Bush tried to have a policy debate. Marco Rubio tried to have a policy debate. Donald Trump said, my hands are bigger than yours and won. This wasn't about policy. This was about persona. This was about, just as you said, a characterization of somebody that, while the policies might not have made sense, Mexico was never going to pay for the wall. Paul Ryan knew that. They joked about that before when asked about it. He wasn't going to appropriate the money that was necessary as of around the Republican convention in 2016 because Paul Ryan said Mexico is going to pay for it. What are we debating now? How much money we're going to appropriate for a wall? So persona is as important in this as uh, as the policy. And I think one thing that Democrats and the left have to be uh, cognizant of is we want to solve problems. We believe government can be a force to address those concerns across our society. We are very good at finding somebody that's really smart that can run a regression analysis and tell you what a policy response can be to try to address X concern. Turning around and just because you have an academic response to it doesn't necessarily mean that you capture the emotional and lived experience of others that are living through that change. And we can point to industries that are in decline or industries that are are, are going to be the, the economic future of the country. Wagging your finger in somebody's face and saying, hey, your industry's in decline, get with it, become a nurse, isn't necessarily a great way of trying to win somebody's trust, support, and confidence about paving a way for a better future. Democrats to me, often seem to want to sanitize electoral concerns through economics. Mm -hmm. There's a real deep comfort with saying it's about your industry being in decline. It's about something. It's about something we can solve through an earned income tax credit or retraining or whatever it might be. And one of the things that's been fascinating about the Trump era is the economy has continued to improve on very much the same rate it was in the Obama era. I mean, 2017 looks like 2016, 2018 looks like 2017. It's just going up a little bit each year. We've not gone into a roaring recovery. And yet the perception among Donald Trump's people that the economy has gotten better has been marked. It has been a transformation in their views about where the country is. And what that implies to me is that how people are feeling about their own economic prospects is not just about what their paycheck looks like. Um, you, you, can't, you can't look at what's happened to paychecks and explain the change in economic perceptions. It's also about their feeling of, are there people in power? Is their tribe doing well? Is the country going in their direction or in the other direction? And you know, one thing that I hear a lot when I, I ask a question I asked you about, about Democrats, because they'll say, you know, Democrats sort of began to forget what it means to not be able to provide for your family. And I say, well, did Obama do that wrong? And they say, no, 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 no. He was great. Um, something just went wrong. Obama also represented a change in status, a change in who held power in this country. The Democratic Party coalition was changing in very, very visible ways. And that seems to me to be something that, that Democrats don't quite, they're not quite comfortable talking about it and don't quite know what to do with. So a lot there. Um, Welcome to my podcast. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> um, let me try to uh, get to as, as much of that as I can. One, I think that what we saw over the course of an Obama administration um, coming out of a great recession and, and, and the years after was an accelerated economic transformation, right? And one that, yes, as you pointed to, kind of the, 
changing political constituencies there for the parties that has ex- accelerated of the, over the course of the past couple of years, and particularly through um, the 2016 election, where those of us that were out there every day campaigning, you could feel the plates underneath the foundations of the parties moving. Donald Trump ran as a Republican. He is not a traditional Republican. He's not a Mitt Romney Republican. He's not a John McCain Republican. He's not a, a Paul Ryan Republican. That being said, um, he ain't a Democrat either. Um, so you could feel the, the 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 bases in some of the parties starting to move, and we've seen. Uh, I think this is a fair statement. A a massive shift in some of the policies put forth by what a Republican Party platform is or what Republicans stand for. They were a year and a half ago a party dead set against the debt. They have racked up a debt at almost unprecedented terms in the past six weeks. Uh, so they were free trade, pro-immigration. Um, they're, they're not either of those anymore. Um, so we're seeing a massive shift take place. You're seeing that shift as well with the Democratic Party, clearly. Uh, but I think what the, the consequence of what we have to recognize in that is, look, clearly some of the, uh, the traditional um, – Democratic voters, and I hear this an awful lot, um, as you can probably imagine, some of those folks that I was was walking through the um, Capitol this morning with a Republican colleague um, from the South who said, um, you know, I was a huge admirer of your grandfather, Robert Kennedy, and I would read his speeches and say, that's why I'm a Democrat. He's a Republican member of the House of Representatives today. Um, There has been a shift in what... um, what core constituencies from a Democratic Party looked like and what core constituencies from a Republican Party looked like. I think that it is incumbent on Democrats, the responsibility of all of us. I want to stop you in that story for a minute. What do you think he meant by that? Um, What do you, I assume he's saying the Democratic Party has changed. I didn't, I didn't push him on it. I hadn't had a cup of coffee yet and it was early and I didn't necessarily want to get into all of it yet uh, before seven in the morning. Um, That being said, I think that, um, what I've heard from him and others that have said similar stories, Ezra, to me, is that the Republican Party, yes, has changed. What I would also point out is, look, society's changed, right? And for, I would argue, for very good and profound reasons. We've become far more tolerant. We've become far more inclusive. We recognize that there are, in fact, differences. That people are willing to, to celebrate those differences in ways that they didn't feel like they could 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And that's, not only is that okay, that's a wonderful thing. Our country should be a place where we're accepting of people, whoever they are, whatever their race, ethnicity, the God of their prayers, the gender of their spouse, their gender identity, that shouldn't matter. Um, And I think what we have to recognize is that as for Democrats, that is, I think, a characterization of what Democrats are really good at. And folks, the criticism is you spend too much time on that. And and I actually don't take that as a as a slight. We should, because the government should 100% say, we've got your back. No matter who you are, we got your back. We, we want you here. We, we accept you. We will fight for you. The second piece to that, though, is you can't divorce the fact that if you can't provide for your family, back to where we were a second ago, almost nothing else matters. Because your, your day, the moment you wake up to the moment your head hits a pillow, if it does, is going to be consumed with the idea of how do you provide a framework for your kids to have a better future. And if you can't, if that is in doubt, you're not really concerned about anything else in your horizon. And I think what we've seen for a, a, a 
a complex series of economic, geopolitical, and yes, politic, domestic political concerns. A, a number of the policies that Obama wanted to put forth from infrastructure to the way that a recovery and reinvestment package was structured was not the way that he would have done it. It was compromise. And then a Republican Party that blocked him from doing anything else. Repatriation dollars being used instead of for stock buybacks that's going to benefit the 50% of Americans that own stocks using those repatriation dollars to fund an infrastructure program that would have had far more widespread and broad-based economic growth. Those were policy choices. Um, and that's the consequence of, unfortunately, the, an election that we didn't do as quite as well as we'd hoped. So one, one thing about the tectonic plates of the parties shifting, as you put it, uh, th- that I think plays into this and, and that I've been thinking about a lot. Uh, I was just reading the book, How Democracies Die, uh, which for, oh, for, for, for this <laughs> conversation has a sort of dark title, but this is just about American <laughs> politics. Um, but they have this stat in there that, that has stuck out to me. And they wrote, the non-white share of the Democratic vote rose from 7% in the 1950s, so in, in your grandfather's time, um, to 44% to 2012. 44% in 2012. Republican voters, by contrast, were about 90% white in the 2000s. So the Republican Party has be maintained an overwhelmingly white character. The Democratic Party has seen its composition change very dramatically. And when I hear your colleagues say, I read the speeches of Robert Kennedy, and that was why I'm a Democrat, and something has changed. And I'm not accusing your colleague of any, of any racial animus, but the feeling people have that a coalition is changing is true. Mm-hmm. It really has changed. I think it's changed more than we even quite know how to discuss. But Barack Obama was by far the most visible form of that change. And in a way, Hillary Clinton was another form of that change. And one of the things here is that I don't think we have a good language in politics for talking about the anxiety that creates in voters um, and and people who feel they're going to be left behind in that change and people who feel politics and power are zero sum and their tribal group is, is, is losing it. So when you say that it should nevertheless be a core democratic commitment that say gender identity is protected. Uh, there are a lot of people who feel very strongly that they don't even understand that. They don't even understand quite what that means. These The language has left them behind. So how do you do this in a way that, that, that opens a party up to people who are currently feeling alienated by it? Because, look, at a certain point, the, the language itself, and while the labels, the labels may be important, the labels also aren't because a person is a person and a person has deserves our respect and our dignity and, and their dignity deserves to be respected and our government deserves, they should demand and our government should expect to be able to defend them for who they are and the dignity that they possess. And that's, that's just, that kind of begins and ends there, period. Um, and the government shouldn't be interfering and whether because of how that person chooses to identify or who the person chooses to love or anything else says you should get social security benefits or not, or your spouse should get survivor benefits or not, or your marriage should be recognized or not. Government should be characterizing or ranking the quality of your love, period. That's just, it's kind of insane um, for, for government to be able to put some, some level of status or some level of legitimacy on an emotional connection that one human being has to another. So stop you fall potentially into a trap in terms of creating all these labels and just saying, look, the the core piece to all of this is just that a person is a person <laughs> and a person is deserving of our respect and support and the government protections that are inherent in every single American here from the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. 
but sure. that, but yeah. that sounds good at the thirty thousand foot, and then you go down, and it and you have a fight over. Well, this group of people are not being treated as a person; they are suffering from police brutality. They're being discriminated against in the workplace. And then you get the counter argument, which is, well, why are you focusing on them? You're playing the race card. You're turning against our police. You're dividing us. I mean, there's a language of, of unity that, that that works. And then Donald Trump comes and says, when Mexico sends its people, they're not sending the best. And the question is, are you going to defend those people or not? And, and so that's sort of my question. I, I kind of get the first right. level of this. But you do then end up in a choice of, well, there are particular concerns that particular constituencies have. There are ways in which... Um, the life of a of a young kid who is gender transitioning is not my life. Um, and how much do you focus on that specifically? How much do you you know go to bat on the North Carolina bathrooms bill when you've got people saying, eh, "What's the big deal about that? You know, why don't we focus on people being able to make their livelihood?" Agreed. Look, the, my childhood and the, and the experiences of life that I've had is very different than. A person of color growing up with a single parent household in the middle of an inner city or somebody who's gone, been going through a gender transition or anything else, right? I mean, I, I recognize that and that is undeniably true. I think, though, that we can, in fact, take a step back and say the anxiety, the pain, the insecurity that somebody might feel because the economic challenges that they and their family face or the ability to provide for their family, the uh, concerns that they have because their daughter or son is being bullied at school. So on the one hand, yes, these differences are different. On the other hand, the response to them and the connections, the emotions that they bring out amongst our society are similar. And those differences certainly lead to the ability for leaders to take advantage of, to drive a wedge between, and to pit group against group and say, given the economic challenges our country faces and our world faces, the only way for your side to succeed is for somebody else to fail. It's zero sum, right? You're going to increase the slice of your pie if somebody else, if you take it from somebody else. Fine. That's one way of looking at it. That is literally an anti-American way of going about it. No one in the- But we've definitely done that way a lot of times in America. And all to our shame when we do. Every single time when we come back and look at it, um, look, there's not many folks that I uh, am aware of that cheered the decision that our country made in turning away the St. Louis. There's not many folks that look back and say that it was right for us to create internment camps for folks of Japanese descent during World War II. No one sits there and says that this was the shining moment in our history. Um, we might have done it. But it is, it's those moments, those focal points, those choices that we as a society make that are the inflection points for a next generation going forward saying, if you are confronted with this again, don't make the mistake that we made. And so the question now is, we are at this inflection point again because of economic transition, because of culture, because of, uh, of changes in our society and our politics, fine. What choices are we going to make? And look, part of this also happens to be not just kind of a, a shake your finger at the right saying, hey, be more tolerant. It's the same thing at the left and saying, hey, listen, you know, the, the economic challenges that I see in Massachusetts, if you talk to folks around greater Boston, it's the cost of housing. It's a commuter rail system that, that, that doesn't quite work. It's a mental health system that is nowhere up to our values. It's uh, the a cost of college and cost of education, uh, disparate educational outcomes at local levels. Donald Trump didn't cause any of those things. He's not solving any of them, but he didn't cause them either. And so if you in Massachusetts like to say, hey, you know, Trump's got a miserable approval rating there. He's, he's against almost everything that Massachusetts stands for. 
fine. But if if you want to confront, and, and I get this a lot from my constituents saying, how do you resist Trump? You put forth an idea for a society that is open, inclusive, and fair, and then one that succeeds. But you can't do that if in order to, to live in the greater Boston area, you have to make $100,000 a year. And if that's what our solution is, then I'm sorry. The left has to rethink its policies because that is not an inclusive society. And so there are things that we can do. We can be a little bit more tolerant. You can recognize the fact that Donald Trump, as much as you might not like him, won the votes of 63 million Americans. And we can get into Russia and you can get into, you know, the democratic primaries process and you can get into all of these other things. I'm not about to sit there and say that there's every single person that voted for Donald Trump did so because they're racist, misogynist, or didn't like, you know, Hillary Clinton. There's people there that voted for him for perfectly legitimate reasons. Hear them out. And that's something that I think the left has to do, be willing to do just as much of, as much as lecturing the right about saying, hey, you know, dividing and conquering America is trying to rank the the preferences of one American over the other. You're supposed to govern all of us. Come on. So let's talk about what it would mean Sorry for the for left. The no, 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 please. Um, so let's talk about what it would mean for the left to rethink that policy consensus. So one view I hold is that party of the center left was left somewhat intellectually exhausted after Obama. And in particular, the great dream of the left. Um, there's a politician, um, he, was in, he was around a couple of years ago, Senator Ted Kennedy, who it's possible you've heard of. Uh, I always found when I came into politics that people looked to him as sort of, this is what liberalism meant. Mm-hmm. And at the center of that crusade was healthcare. And then with Ted Kennedy's help, the Affordable Care Act passed. Mm-hmm. And it has done, I'm a big fan of the Affordable Care Act, it has done a tremendous amount of good. And it has also had two other effects. One is that it's been controversial. It's disappointed people. It's a, it is in its own way a lot of half measures stitched together into a whole. But it also left um, much of the Democratic Party without – with like a big healthcare-shaped hole in its agenda. What was it telling people the Great Crusade still was? Bernie Sanders had an answer because he said, well, it wasn't nearly enough. We need full single payer, right? We actually didn't achieve the goal. What do you think is at the center of the Democratic agenda now? So the, the core of this, I believe, is uh, the idea that every single American, regardless of – who you are, your station in life should be able to achieve a setting where you can keep a roof over your head, food on your plate, your kid in a good school, safe retirement and be safe and secure in your community. And if we can't do that, if our government can't provide that framework of our society can't, and look, you know, there's always going to be levels of inequality in our system. Fine. But this is something that we should strive to ensure that every single American is able to do that. And that's that has been the core of the democratic message, and I believe it is still the core of the democratic message. Now, healthcare is a huge piece to that. Why? Because as are like I think most folks, healthcare is something that particularly if you're young and healthy, you don't think about until you need it, in which case it is the only thing that you think about. We've all had our issues with our healthcare system. It is an extremely complex system. Um, Try going up against an insurance company or a payer system or trying to understand your bill is next to impossible. The piece to this that I think the right doesn't quite um, or is unwilling to admit is the fact that when it comes to healthcare, we're paying for those inefficiencies already. So the question isn't really... Are we going to pay for it? It's who pays and how much. 
And that's what the health, the ACA tried to, Obamacare tried to put some clarity around. The idea that you're going to sit there and say no one should be denied a pre, based upon a pre-existing condition, which even Republican colleagues, if you talk to them in the midst of that debate, they'd say we don't want to go back to that point. Great. But you're going to take away an individual mandate requiring people buy insurance. You know what's going to happen? No one's going to buy insurance until they have to. <laughs> so you don't have to be in a healthcare economist to know that some of the measures that they just put forth actually don't make the economic sense that the party that's supposed to be about economics does. But 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 to, to go to the bigger point here, yeah. um, the Democratic Party had the Affordable Care Act. It, it did it. It passed it. I mean, Hillary Clinton defended it, was going to build on it. And, and it wasn't enough. There was a connection missing with the voters. People did not look at that Democratic Party, that party that just passed this. It was very clear who was on the side of that policy and who is not, and say, we want you all to keep having power, Mm -hmm. right? They also didn't give Democrats a a House majority. They didn't give them the Senate majority. And so I guess what I'm asking you here is, do Democrats need a new thing at the center of the Democratic vision? I mean, do Democrats need to be pushing for, is it a universal basic income? Is it a jobs guarantee? Is it single payer? Is it free? One thing that Donald Trump had were policies that stood in Mm -hmm. for the vision, Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I think Democrats had that too. Universal health care was something specific. I mean, it wasn't detailed, but it was specific. And it represented, it was a synecdoche for the Democratic vision. And it feels to me that with the Affordable Care Act being a complicated real world thing, that aspirational anchor is gone. So I think um, a couple of things. One, I don't think it's, well, look, the we obviously didn't do as well as we'd hoped. Democratic Party didn't do as well as we would have hoped in those 2010 midterms. I think it's not, not to say that you were, not entirely fair to put all of the uh, that electoral turmoil on the Affordable Care Act. Right? I put all, I put very small amount of it on the Affordable Care right. Act. Um, and but I think it contributed to Hillary Clinton not quite having a center. Fair. I do think that there's a... Look, the the reality of this also, remember, is the consequence of the bill that was passed ended up being the very, di- very different from the bill that we've got today. That the individual, the Medicaid expansion was mandatory. You would have had millions of other people that would have had access to Medicaid than currently have today. The Medicaid, I believe Medicaid eligibility level, and I believe it's Alabama, is $3,000, right? $3,000 in order to be able to get access to health care, right? That, that's an insanely no, low number. So it's far, given the way that, that, that this has passed, out, it's far from exactly the vision that Democrats had when the bill was passed. Now, that being said, I think there are, there's principles in healthcare that we all can fight for and all need to fight for, and I think actually unify the Democratic Party. Now, whether that's, and that is a quest for universal coverage, and it is a quest to make sure that every person in America gets access to quality, affordable, accessible healthcare, period. We are far from that at the moment. We've made extraordinary gains under the ACA, but we're not there yet. How we get there is, yes, we can have a big, broad vision, and I'm open to that single-payer idea, absolutely. The challenge is, is we want to make sure that it turns out that the details on this are complex and they're hard and we want to make sure we get it right because we just saw what happens when you run on a slogan about repealing and replacing something when people actually understand what it is are really far more comfortable with it than they might have thought they were. So as a person, one of my um, problems is I have a tendency to lapse into a lot of opinions about the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> and so I, I think I'm I think I'm failing in, in asking this question. I, I hear you on the Affordable Care Act. I think what I'm what I'm asking is I hear your vision, right? I hear what you say that if the Democratic Party can't give people a shot at a home, mm-hmm. a shot at security, a shot at economic opportunity, then what is it here for actually? Mm-hmm. And what I'm asking back is 
what is the tangible thing? When I hear that, that's generality. Mm-hmm. When I hear that, that is the kind of first paragraph of the speech before mm-hmm. it goes into to what it is. And and if the Democratic Party is going to convince people that it has changed, that it has heard them, that it understands what they are going through, and that it has something it's going to give them, um, that it has something it's going to do for them, my hypothesis is that it can't be the Affordable Care Act again. Mm-hmm. Um, but but whether or not, if it can, that's one answer. But if it's something else, I think that's my question. What is the successor in the democratic vision, what is what is at the core when you make that promise to people, or when you talk to other Democrats and try to think about what the party needs to be going forward? What is the thing that is its either immediate or multi generational project now? What, what 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 tangibly, like specifically, what is so the I, idea? I I think we can start with healthcare. One, I think it is building on the success of the Affordable Care Act because I don't think anyone would sit there and say that it is it is the final product at this point, given what's happened through repeal efforts and the courts and an onslaught of Republican uh, executive action, one. So building on the excess of the ACA to make sure, again, that everybody gets access to quality, affordable, accessible health care, two. I do believe that the economic inequities that we are confronting with or are confronted with across our, our society stems in large part from an educational advantage that we held uh, over the rest of the world for a generation or so, two, and we have squandered. And it has to be a recognition that our educational, primary, secondary, and uh, college, that that system has to change and has to adapt. Um, yes, educational financing is a piece of that when it comes to college and college affordability. But it's also looking at um, other interventions like vocational schools, like community colleges, like badging and credentialing, trying to make sure there's a far uh, more direct and consistent pathway for a generation to gain the skills and keep the skills that they need in order to get into the workforce and keep themselves at a workforce. That vocational school that I, I gave that speech at two weeks ago, the median household income in Fall River, Massachusetts is $34,000 a year, household. When I was down there, this was now a couple of years ago, in their plumbing shop, I asked the plumber, I asked the, the faculty member there, I said, look, your top students, and they literally are going to any college they want in the country, vocational school in Fall River, but whatever school they want in the country. What's a good, solid student do? What's their future look like? He said, they come out of here at 18. They can do their, uh, they'll they'll get an apprenticeship. They'll take the courses nights. When they're 20, 21 years old, 22 years old, they can sit and they will pass the state board to be a licensed plumber. I said, okay, so what does that mean? He said, depending on where you're on the state, 75 grand a year. That is a 22-year-old kid with virtually no debt that is going to be able to double their household income by the time they're 22 and have a consistent pathway to a middle-class job. It is going back to making sure that we invest in those pathways, in those uh, in that trajectory. There is a wait list as across Massachusetts of between two and 3,000 students to get into vocational schools. This is a, a community that is as progressive as Massachusetts. We now know what what can work. There are more CEOs in Massachusetts than plumbers. There is a, a community screaming out to say, I want to be a plumber, and we aren't funding that pathway. That is shameful. And we should be doing more on this across the country. Congress has been slow to try to recognize that and to try to scale up what that possibly means. We've got a roughly $4 trillion gap on infrastructure in this country. That's an awful lot of welders. That's an awful lot of road repairs. That's an awful lot of building trades that we should be investing in. 200, repurposing $200 billion and leveraging private sector money to get to 1.5. One, it's funny money. Two, the math doesn't add up. Three, it certainly doesn't address 
communities like Fall River. You're talking about Trump's infrastructure. Trump's infrastructure plan. It certainly doesn't address Trump's infrastructure, whatever it is. Yes. (laughs) It certainly doesn't address, there's some money that's going to rural communities. Great. There's some money, supposedly. There's some money that's supposed to go to big ROI. Fine. There's communities like Fall River, Massachusetts that don't quite fall into either of those. They're completely left out. Completely left out. So there's... There's an awful lot that we can do here that actually provides the educational base for a country that does is still the most developed economy in the world to stay ahead. A big piece of that, yes, is immigration, making sure we continue to attract the brightest minds anywhere in the world so that they can come here and start companies. You know those stats better than I do. Startups are the engine of, of job growth in this country, not big firms that have basically zero net job creation over the past several years. It's the new companies that end up spurring job creation and small businesses. You have to create that ecosystem and, and foster it. There's, there's pieces here that actually lay that foundation that Democrats, I think, stand for, have stood for, and we can be excited about. I, I'd love to talk about immigration for a couple minutes here. This is something where it seems to me Trump has done a tremendous job changing the debate. Uh, We are now having a debate in this country over legal immigration, right? I mean, it used to be that Republicans were upset about illegal immigration and and, and amnesty. Um, And now the sort of ask Trump has made is that we cut legal immigration by 50%. And one of the things that it's made me think about is how for all that you were just saying about immigrants being entrepreneurial and them being drivers of innovation, and I come from Southern California, my my community was heavily immigrant, my father is an immigrant. I mean, immigration is one of the most deeply held moral commitments I have. Um, It's just, it is what my life was like. It's what my community was. And something I never hear is Democrats or anyone really, a lot of them defend the people who are here now, both both people who, who, who are authorized and who are unauthorized. But I really never hear Democrats say, you know what, immigrants are good for America and we should in fact have more of them. Um, that the, the number we have is we, we now have a conversation between sort of exactly the number we have now and sort of a, the policies we're on and Donald Trump's that minus 50 percent. And and I do think it's a way in which the conversation ends up being warped. If, if, if immigration is so good, if it's such a part of our economic strength, why isn't it something that, that we should expand? So we should. And I think when I first got into Congress 2013, there was a bill that came out of the Senate that had a veto-proof majority in order to uh, a comprehensive immigration bill that looked at not just the folks that were here, but revamping what our legal immigration policies would be to try to put us on a, a policies that actually matched our economy and our country. We couldn't get a vote on it in the House. And by the way, if we gotten a vote on it in the House, it would have passed. We did a whip count. We had the votes. Speaker Boehner at that point wouldn't, wouldn't give us a vote. What we've seen is the consequence, again, of a small minority of Republicans, more or less the Freedom Caucus, but not wholly when it comes to immigration. Those are folks that have views on immigration, but they're not the ones that are solely the ones tying up an immigration bill. But they're roughly 10% of the House of Representatives dictating what the policy for the entire House of Representatives is going to be because they're such an influential block within a Republican caucus. We've got the votes now to pass an immigration bill that provides money to secure the border and provides uh, protection for DACA recipients that has 26 or 27 Republicans on board today. That vote, that bill will pass the House of Representatives. It gets on the floor. Paul Ryan will put it on the floor. This is one of those episodes that the, the will of the, of the American people is actually matched with 
their legislative bodies, but because of a political calculus by Republican House leadership, they're unwilling to actually move it forward just because of the politics. So, look, there is, I, I will also say to, to your point, an extremely different debate that is had in communities like Massachusetts, where when I visit companies in, in and around Boston, one of their biggest challenges, there's a group of them that came into my office yesterday. They can't find, they've got <laughs> they've got dozens of job openings because they can't find the skilled technicians that they need. And those are, you know, some of them are, have advanced degrees and those are PhDs and they're, um, they'd love to be able to recruit folks from other countries. They're, they're jobs that they can't fill. Why we would not want to provide them the pathway to hire those folks is crazy. We should be able to do this. Let me ask a question from the other direction now to, to try to make the, the Trump supporter point on this. Yep. One of the things that I almost think has been useful about this period of the immigration debate is that it has cleaved it from a lot of fog. I think that people often pretend we're having a debate about economics, about jobs, and then you get into this argument about the numbers, and the numbers look pretty good on immigration, so you're like, well, why aren't you? And, and there are a lot of people in this country, Donald Trump is clearly one of them, who are uncomfortable with how fast its composition is changing. I don't have the number in front of me, but the the number of foreign-born Americans uh, has skyrocketed in the last 40 years. I mean, it's more than doubled. And there is a discomfort with it. Um, there is a discomfort with the idea that you press two for Spanish, and there's a discomfort with the idea that the, the country's changing fast around you, and a discomfort with the idea that uh, maybe you're being left behind or whatever it might be. What do you say to those people? The economic transition, the cultural transition that we are in clearly exacerbates that feeling. And that, that feeling is undeniable. And it is that concern, that feeling that folks have, I, I can't, I'm not going to dismiss. You can't, right? Um, I do think we have to meet that anxiety or frustration or anger that people feel, acknowledge it, and ask the question of, why? Why do you feel that way? What is it about this change that makes you feel that way? And I think critically, and so this is what Trump has done well, is to tap into that and um, then try, although I would argue has not hasn't been very successful, to flesh out policies that will protect that way of life. It won't. And that's the, that's the fallacy of um, Trump's policies and his persona, parents of young kids in Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, or other parts of Latin America, that it is so dangerous and so violent and so unstable that you would trust a human trafficker to take your kids to America to in search for a better life, that you're going to pay a human trafficker to move them through thousands of miles and dangerous countries in the hopes that you get there. One, that's because it's really bad where, where they are. The idea that you get through all of that trouble and confront a 20-foot wall and a 20-foot wall is going to stop them from getting in is insane. It's just not, that's not real. The other part of this, which is stunning to me, that he, he that this administration has not recognized, a large reason why there is such insta instability in many of those countries and corruption in some parts of Mexico is because of a drug trade that is being used, starts on our streets. And so... We can look at immigration as an international problem. It is being fueled by instability because of drugs that are being bought and sold on the streets of American cities and in our heartland. And we are not actually trying anything to address that problem. DEA, I met with them several months ago. When I asked them what the 
cost of the heroin trade alone was with Mexico. So just Mexico and heroin poppy coming in from Mexico into the United States. And it was roughly, roughly now, a billion dollars a week. Right? One drug to one country. Big support of the Obama administration, obviously. But when they had a plan to address immigration instability issues in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador of a billion-dollar investment in three countries over multiple years for a billion dollars, that's... (laughs) That's not even close to what's necessary. You want to address the issues that are just going to stem immigration here? you got to stem immigration from those countries into the southern United States. You have to look at the drivers that are pushing it. And that, for a big part of this, is actually a drug trade here. Well, let me ask you about that because you have a harder line on drugs than a lot of Democrats do now. Uh, A lot of people hear that and they say, this is something we have created with prohibition. Prohibition has failed. Um, we need to begin loosening this in profound ways. We're in D.C. where marijuana is now legal. Um, California legalized. Uh, I believe you're a critic of legalization at that level. Talk to me a bit about how you see the drug trade. What what what, what would you do? So one, um, I think important to kind of make distinctions between the various drugs. So one that has been um, obviously particularly pointing across our country and devastating to um, many of the communities that are represented is opiates. So prescription drugs uh, and then into heroin. Um, prescription drugs come from our pharmacies, right, and our medical suppliers and, our, and our, some of our pharmaceutical companies here in the United States. It is unconscionable to me that um, we haven't been able to get a better handle on this where you still have 30 people dying a day from opioids. And that that has, I mean, I saw this when I was a prosecutor, a lot of the cases that I, I tried where kids are breaking into cars or homes to try to get a couple of extra bucks to buy an Oxycontin pill at $80 a pill, that if you had a four or five pill a day habit, you had to come up with four or 500 bucks. And you pretty quickly went to heroin that was $5 a bag. It was mm-hmm. an economic decision. Now, 90% of heroin users roughly end up starting on prescription drugs, and 90% of heroin users are going to relapse over the course of their life. You now, if you are able to successfully intervene with a 22-year-old that is in a heroin addiction, they are going to be in recovery for the rest of their lives. This is not a one-off thing. You've got a a, a challenge there for, for somebody that is going to be suffering from one of the most dangerous and deadly uh, conditions uh, out there that are going to need long-term support. And that's not just to say medical intervention, but when they do relapse, which is in all likelihood going to happen, that we have a society that says, let's get you the treatment that you need. We have been shameful uh, in our acknowledgement of it and the supports that are necessary in order to to try to drive down demand in this country, which is just nowhere near the conversations we're having. To link back to the healthcare debate, Medicaid is the largest payer of mental and behavioral health services in this country. Republicans tried to gut that by $800 billion. $800 billion. It's insane. At the same time, then trying to say they're going to throw a couple another billion dollars at opioids, you just cut it by hundreds of billions of dollars. This, this, it doesn't come close to matching up. So one is actually taking a good hard look in the mirror and saying, let's try to actually flush out a sustained mental behavioral health treatment system in this country where we are nowhere close at. Two, it is working with our uh, our partners from law enforcement and the military in some of those other countries and making investments in those countries as we have in the past um, with some modicum of success, although some challenges, right? Uh, but again, as long as there is such demand in this country for those illicit drugs, it is going. they are going to come. Uh, and that's where I think we have to make an acknowledgement of saying, yes, we need to continue the interdictions. And yes, we need to do more under the border security. And yes, we need to do all of those things. But 
as long as people can make billions of dollars a week in profit, there's going to be a way that these drugs come to our streets. I guess that's where one of my questions is, is there not a reason to wonder we've made, we've created this market. Mm-hmm. We've made all these drugs illicit. And I don't feel comfortable saying let's legalize heroin. I mean, that's yeah. not, not where I am on this, but certainly on something like marijuana, um, I feel comfortable saying, well, we legalize that. We've legalized that in my home state. We've legalized mm-hmm. it in D.C. There doesn't seem to be terrible problems. You have a, a, a different line on this. So I'm curious, mm-hmm. given your concern about the consequences of the illicit trade, how you think about the question of keeping it illicit or beginning to, to, to open that up a little bit. So at least what is happening is under the law. You can regulate mm-hmm. it. You can watch it. You can you can keep some control over it. So this one's um – this one's a tough one for me because it, it, my views are not um, do not line, exactly line up with my own state, and it's something that I am struggling with. I think, look, there's when it comes to legalization of marijuana, if that is something that um, society has decided that we want to do, um, fine. I think we got to be really careful about what exactly that means and how we do it. So we decriminalized it um, when I was uh, in the court system when I was trying cases uh, or shortly thereafter. Uh, if I remember the years right, uh, in Massachusetts. When we decriminalized it, it actually had a pretty big consequence for the way that um, Massachusetts the prosecutors went about trying cases in terms of because an odor of marijuana was, at least initially, uh, because marijuana was an illegal substance, if you smelled it in a car, you could search a car. When it became decriminalized, you couldn't do that. So that was the way that we had the, the base case that prosecutors used to search cars that undercovered contraband, guns, knives, a whole bunch of other stuff, all of that got thrown out the window. That's not to say that's right or wrong, but that is to say when that went through a public referendum, which is how that law was passed, I don't think anybody had much thought to, you're actually going to change one of the foundational principles for law enforcement that we use in our court system. There is no reliable, at least in Massachusetts, roadside test to test to see whether somebody's under the influence of marijuana. Presumably, with more widespread usage of marijuana, that is at least a threat that's going to go up. I think it's worth us understanding, well, do we have the tools that are necessary in order to keep the communities safe as we try to actually go through and and make this uh, a substance that is far more widespread? It's something that um, while there's... The casual marijuana user isn't something that I'm over that I, that I have a whole lot of concerns about. There is evidence and data about obviously youth, teens, um, adolescents getting access to marijuana and what that can do. And as we've talked about before, one of my main focuses in Congress is on mental behavioral health and addiction. And there's a number of voices in that community that do um, pose, I think, serious questions about. Um, some of the de, uh, either the decriminalization or legalization efforts there. And I think we just need to be careful about that. Um, federal policy on this, I will concede, is a nightmare. It is a mess. And that's something that Congress has to clean up a bit. Um, but it's something that I think we just need to be deliberate about and careful about as we try to plot this forward because it's not quite as simple as I, at least I don't view it as quite as simple as some other folks do. Would it be right to say that that in that answer I'm hearing a past around addiction and um, things that you have seen that make you think that people are not taking the way this is going to interact with the folks who have the most problematic relationships with these substances seriously? Yeah, look, I think that at least the way that I view role of government on this is, yes, to understand how our laws are going to impact the average person, right? But it's also how it's going to view the folks on the extreme. So the folks that it doesn't, might not touch all that much, but the folks that it means an awful lot to. And while we have to obviously understand what's going to happen with the average Joe, if you will. It the has, average Joe Kennedy. The average Joe Kennedy. There you go. <laughs> 
how that touches folks that aren't average. Um, and I want to make sure that we are really careful and give requisite thought to um, the policies, the procedures, the safeguards, the protections that need to be put in place in order to mitigate from that downside risk. Undeniably, there's states out there that have tried to go about this deliberately and thoughtfully and put in some of these safeguards and put in um, taxes and high tax revenue and, and use that revenue to turn back over to the states to try to make some of these interventions. That's great. I do have concerns, some of which is if you tax it too much, you actually create an incentive for a black market, right? Um, so we we just got to be, you got to be thoughtful about this. And it's not something that I want to get in a position where you kind of rush through because clearly public opinion is on one side of this and moving pretty hard one, in one direction. But I do believe part of my job is to, in those moments, kind of take a deep breath and say, okay, have we thought about these various other scenarios there and do we have answers for them? So it's interesting because when I hear you say that, I hear two things. One is, or I think two things. One is that you're talking about how does it impact people differentially, which I think is important and I think is undernoticed in this. So on the one hand, you gave an example that I read, I think, the opposite of the way one might, mm -hmm. which is the idea that marijuana was a way you could search cars. Mm -hmm. That, to me, the first thing I hear is that is a wonderful way for racial bias to, to creep mm -hmm. and act inside of a legal system. Mm -hmm. That that kind of discretion, given what we know about marijuana use, given mm -hmm. what we know about who gets searched mm – -hmm. um, being that marijuana yep. use is equal among the population, but who gets searched is not equal mm -hmm. among the population. That is sort of exactly one of the reasons that I am I tend to be pro-legalization. On the other hand, when I talk to drug policy experts, they say that, you know, people tend to think about the pot smokers they know, but the pot is getting smoked by 5, 10, 15 percent of the population who has a lot of trouble with self-control, just mm -hmm. like um, the majority of alcohol is drunk by the people who have the biggest alcohol problems. And that as you build these markets and these build incentives, that they're the ones who don't end up being okay, even as most people are fine. And and, and that to me feels like where this gets very difficult. Um, yes. You do have populations that end up being treated or reacting to this very differently. Mm -hmm. But those trade-offs, I think we all want to think about the, the norm when the trade-offs act most intensely. Yep. Um, among either marginalized communities or communities whose mm -hmm. psychology or physiology reacts differently to these substances. So I agree with you 100 percent. And um, I very much take your first point on the, the search piece. Um, and you're right, clearly. Uh, the piece that I would just kind of put out there is there was very little discussion about, at least that I was aware of during that course of that decriminalization debate, as to about whether this was an issue to look at desperate racial outcomes um, in the search of motor vehicles um, and whether the proper way of doing that was to decriminalize marijuana, right? And so this was a consequence of, but not the motivation to the law. We clearly have inequities in our in our criminal justice system, right? I, I was a prosecutor. I saw that every single day. I saw um, extremely dedicated public servants that were trying to work through it, but you know, I worked for uh, two different offices in, in Massachusetts, and uh, I was proud to have, to have done so. It was a great job. Our criminal justice system needs a good hard look at how we um, address the racial disparities that we're confronting, undoubtedly. Drugs are a big piece to that debate. The part that I don't think gets enough attention here is if you want to talk about looking at this as a public health issue and not a criminal justice issue, which I wholeheartedly agree with, 
But then let's invest in our public health system. And we're not having that discussion. Well, let me ask you about one piece of the public health system, which is you talk a lot about mental health infrastructure. Mm-hmm. What is infrastructure for mental health? Because that's a, a word you don't often hear used there. So 55% of the counties across our country, Ezra, 55% do not have a single practicing psychiatrist, psychologist, or social worker, right? This is, well, we see um, people that are struggling the, the most amount of attention on this gets focused on an opioid uh, epidemic, which is deserves and, and necessitates our attention and far bigger attention than, than getting out of Congress and local governments. It's so much bigger than that. The combination of the Affordable Care Act and a law called mental health parity created a sea change in terms of access to, to mental and behavioral health care. That's great. But when you actually look at issues like re- Medicaid reimbursement rates, Medicaid is the largest payer of mental and behavioral health in the country. Reimbursement rates in some of those states are so low um, that if you try to get, even if you are a Medicaid beneficiary, um, one, many mental health practitioners, they won't take private insurance, period, um, because they can get a higher value just on an open market. If they do take private insurance, they're certainly not taking Medicaid. If they do take Medicaid, literally wait list in order to go see a, a doctor can be months long. Think about that if you're a cancer patient. You say, yeah, you've got cancer. It might be stage two or stage three, but we can't see you for three or four months. How would we ever accept that in our ment- in our healthcare system. To be fair, we sometimes do. <laughs> yeah, but, but we shouldn't. But we shouldn't, yes. Right? We shouldn't. Well and the outcry to that is is pretty loud yes. to say we need to fix it. There's no one, there, there are very few folks out there that are screaming to say, hey, this just, this is acceptable mm-hmm. when it comes to mental behavioral health. The consequences of not investing in that system drive up our healthcare costs enormously. Why? One, because people end up in the emergency room because that's where they go after they have a psychotic break. Two, it puts our police officers on the front lines and first responders on the front lines of being mental health uh, interventionists because when somebody, and this is what you saw at a, the, the lowest level of our court system, somebody that was disturbing the peace or harassing customers at a store or you know, walking down the middle of the street uh, at night that ends up getting arrested by the police because they don't know what else to do, the police can take him to a hospital to get him stabilized, but after a while, the emergency room says he can't stay here, and so the police don't really have another option. They'll charge him with disorderly conduct and bring him to me to arraign him. And then I turn around and say, okay, he's a homeless guy. The charge for disorderly conduct, the penalty is a $100 fine. What do you want me to do with him? And they turn around and put their hands up in the air just like I am. And you dismiss the case because what else are you going to do? And he goes right back out to where he was before. And this cycle just goes over and over and over again. And it puts enormous pressure on our police officers to then be the frontline interventionists because... People aren't getting the mental health care that they need, which oftentimes then leads to tragedy in terms of either backlash against the police or some horrible circumstance happening with somebody that we haven't been willing to treat because they're sick. And that's it, – it is stunning in a country that is um, – that we have these policy debates as we do that is unwilling to actually make the systemic investment um, that is necessary given the consequence that we know um, is going to have in terms of – life, um, in terms of quality of life, and in terms of healthcare costs. So I want to thank you for being here. Um, and and I know you've got uh, other things on your schedule today, so I appreciate all the time. But I want to ask the question we asked to, to end the podcast, which is, what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? Ooh, um, the one I'm reading right now, which has been fascinating, is Walter Isaacson's biography of Leonardo da Vinci. Um, so that's been a great read. Uh, one that's affected me more than... Um, I'll, more than most of late um, was When Breath Becomes Air, which is a pretty stunning read. What did um, you take from that? 
Um, have you read it? It's a memoir of a, for, for the audience. Yeah. It's a memoir of a doctor who is dying while he writes this book. Um, and a brilliant doctor uh, our age. It puts um, it puts a lot of things in perspective, and it really asks, forces, I think, folks to ask those questions about uh, priorities and, and quality of life and not duration. And a gut punch for, you know, a dad of two very young kids. Particularly tough read, but a powerful one. And then I'll get cheesy on you. The Alchemist. Always a good read. Uh, Congressman Kennedy, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you to Congressman Kennedy for being here. Thank you to my producer, Bird Pinkerton. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production powered by the interest and the loyal listenership of listeners like you. So thank you most of all. You are great. And I am leaving the studio now. <laughs>